3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Tricia would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the lands, the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boorong people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of the land upon which we work. We pay respects to elders, past and present, and emerging, and extend the respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this live broadcast. We acknowledge that and continue the resistance of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and treaty was never signed. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. Hey, it's great to be back. It's good to be back, likewise, Judith. Haven't been sitting here for a little bit. Yeah. It's beautiful, rainy, misty out there in the mornings. Yes, 23rd of May. I can't believe it. We're just moving right along. And yes, this morning, wasn't ice on the windshield, but... I could feel that maybe, you know, a few more weeks, a month, it's going to be there. I know it's definitely around the corner, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I say that as I'm rubbing my hands, trying to keep them warm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We've got a beautiful show coming up this week. We have. We've got a lot on. And um, after uh, 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking to Father Ron Bauer uh, from the Gosford Anglican Church, and you probably know him. I mean, always over Facebook, you find uh, you know the signs they put out out front of the church. Have you seen them? They've I have seen them. Are they responsible for all the signs out the front of the church? No, well, front of their church, I <laughs> assume. And we will we'll be able to ask him. But I guess the reason that we'll be talking to him today is they had uh, and what he's described really as, as an invasion of uh, right-wing, allegedly right-wing neo-Nazi groups at their Saturday Mass um, from Melbourne, apparently. So uh, we're going to hear more about that and and what's happened. We're also going to catch up on the um, Religious Freedom Review that was led by Kevin Ruddick, um, instigated immediately after the gay marriage vote, or not vote, but um, postal survey. So... Mm. We'll be speaking to Lee Carney from the Human Rights Law Centre, and um, she's going to you know, tell. I mean, the report's now been presented to Malcolm Turnbull, but um, we don't know what's in it. So, so we'll be hearing what she's got to say, and also from Greg Denham from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. And you know, there's been a big inquiry also there around uh, drug law reform, and um, we're going to hear yeah about a seminar they've got coming up. Pack show, and we've also got a little That's bit of. not all. Yeah, I know. We've got an Environmental Justice Australia coming in to talk. A representative there, Dr. James Wellheen. He's a self professed frontier cowboy. A wonderful idea. Air pollution <laughs> That's great. So that's going to be a bit of a hurt. So make sure to stay tuned coming up. We've also got Marlene in the studio. Before we get to Marlene to talk about um, Snake and an event that's coming up in Fitzroy area, um, just kick off Reconciliation Week next Monday, we've got a little pre-record. Well, we have, and uh, you know, yesterday it was just really lovely, actually. I went over to the um, Footscray Community Arts Centre because this weekend they've got the Womanjika Festival happening. And I, I love going there because it, it always feels so alive. 
But in particular, just hearing about what they've got on on the weekend. So there's, it's a um, celebration of contemporary indigenous arts culture. And there's going to be music, there's going to be plays, there's going to be art exhibitions. And yeah, and this year in particular, the festival uh, lines, sorry, revisits the lines walked between youth and elders. And I think in this interview, you'll definitely hear the connection across elders and young artists. So I'm speaking to um, Hannah Morphy Walsh, a young Trungarong artist, and she's also one of the curators of the exhibition Black to the Future, an alternative future told by young Aboriginal artists. And we begin by looking at some of the work. We're standing in front of Savannah's piece, Savannah Kruger. The way she described it to me was it's about decolonization. It's a projection of Savannah's video work onto a mirror. And she's looking in a mirror and she's examining her face and she's putting on makeup. She's taking off makeup. Aha. Uh-huh. She's taking off the uh, institutionalized whiteness. And in the bin, we actually have the wipes and the wig from the video. So we are standing in front of Kaitlyn Bauer's anode to those that said, fuck you. Kaitlyn is... He keeps saying 14. I keep being told 13, and I don't know which one to honour. So I'm going to say Kaitlyn's 14 years old. It is a collage of rappers. Papa's pictures and gold frames. Quite a powerful group of photos and the way they've been put together. I think it really works. Aboriginal people have kind of been at the forefront of politics our entire lives. It's understandable that even our, especially our kids would gravitate towards these deeply political styles of music. I, it really speaks for itself, man. And whose work is this? We are standing in front of my work, and it is a mirror, bright colours, and a bag. And there are a collection of books in front of the mural. I believe that like art should have a purpose. I grew up in the 90s, and my mother was like like one of the feminists on the front lines in the 80s. So we had access to quite the uh, library of activist literature, the old poets and when I started working, most of my money went into buying a bunch of trade paperbacks. And I try to support women artists. So most of the books have women involved in the creative process, like colorists and artists, writers. There wasn't a lot for me to refer to in terms of sort of the political understanding Aboriginality as a politic and how the community put words to what was happening. So I read a lot of um, African-American civil rights literature, a lot of texts about diasporic people, like mixed-race families. and What a, a rich literature to engage with. My father was an activist in his youth, and you know my mother came up through upswing of like when the unis were all hotspots of rebellion. Like, that's just my family. It's always been hard to place myself in terms of, like, Australian identity in general because I don't really fit the Aboriginal narrative in the sense that, I don't know, I don't... We didn't... We never lived, like, in... You know, we were just always in the heart of, like, Australia, Australia. There's no 
Yeah, so I don't have a lot of the mission stories that people grew up with. Although, of course, I do recognize them because they were my family. And, like, I grew up in very white areas. I went to a lot of white schools. And, like, I never really got to place myself in either of those worlds entirely. I, I'm, I'm just a big old hippie who believes that we all have these shared synchrony in the human experience and you know there's there's a certain there's only so many ways you can operate within the world and I think finding finding the sort of people that speak to how you yourself would like to be or how you would like to think of the world and in my case very critically. And if you've just tuned in to Wednesday Breakfast, I'm speaking to Hannah Morphy-Walsh, who's one of the co-curators of Black to the Future, part of the Womanjika Festival. It's on this weekend at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Lots and lots happening there. I asked Hannah what it was like to be a co-curator of an exhibition. Actually, it was really easy. I worked with Rosie Kalina. We sat down once a week and just talked about what we wanted. Was it hard to decide what should go in? Not really. We decided that it was more important to like, approach young artists, everyone in this under the age of 30. We thought it was more important to, so important to have young black artists work. And everyone has just been amazing, they've... All of their work speaks to a different part of what it's like to be a young Aboriginal person. How old is the youngest artist in this exhibition? The youngest artist is around 13. I would honestly like to see younger again. I would love to see young black creatives coming up through the ranks every year because... All of these artists started when they were, you know, eight, nine, you know, in their early teens. So this is the eighth Womanjika Festival, Arts Festival. What is it hoping to achieve? This year we're really looking to get into a community focus. So it's very heavily built around local artists and the elders. It's been built from the ground up, very much driven by the community. Is there an event that you're particularly excited about? I'm looking forward to Little Wunjika music. That's on Sunday? Is that on Sunday? It is. So there's like a huge variety in musicians. There'll be something for everyone's taste. We've got weaving. We have Which Way Home from Obituary Theatre Company in our performance space on Friday and Saturday. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to be there. Check it out. And I am going to check it out, and I hope lots of people listening will do the same. Thanks so much for making time, Hannah. Thank you so much for coming. And it was just a great pleasure to to go and get a preview of the exhibition, and I thought um, the Black to the Future exhibition was was just great. A lot of variety in, in the art, and um, just a lot of originality, ingenuity, and, um, yeah, making a statement. And uh, it was interesting hearing Hannah's connection with her parents' radical history, I thought. So, you know, bringing in that idea of um, 
the lines walked between youth and elders. Mm. She positioned herself very well there. But little do we know, up next we got Maylene Slater-Burns in the studio, and she is going to be performing at the festival on Saturday. But that's coming up next. We've got Radiothon coming up also at 3CR. We've got many things coming up, but stay tuned. Marlene's in the studio. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The social safety net in Australia is being eroded by government cutbacks to essential services and also bullying tactics, as we've seen recently with the Centrelink robo-debts, for just one example. This is a public service announcement. Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. Tune in every Monday at 7.50am on Monday Brekkie for Over the Wall. Here we are, Wednesday breakfast. It's heading for a top of 16, I believe, out there. Oh, is it? It is. I didn't check. (laughs) Rug up, rug up. But we have Marlene Slater-Burns in the studio now. She's from Snake. Aboriginal Child Care Protection Agency. We're putting on a little event for Reconciliation Week, Reconciliation on the Rooftop at Fitzroy Library. Thanks for coming in. It's so early in this morning. Yeah, I'm everybody. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's always wonderful when people come into the studio. So, yeah, it's just nice sitting here and, and uh, saying hello. Yay. <laughs> and now, Reconciliation Week this year round is running with Don't Keep History a Mystery. Uh, how is the event going to stay true to that theme on Monday? So, um, yeah, we're very excited. We're um, Snakes in partnership with Aboriginal Housing Victoria and we have an amazing event happening at um, the Yarra Libraries um, in North Fitzroy. Uh, we kick off at 12 o'clock, 12 to 2. Um, the way that we're going to capture this year's theme, I guess, is through inviting everybody down along to to share in, in the event and, and all the activities that we have on the day. We, um, we will be blessed with a welcome to country as per cultural protocol. Um, our team have been working really hard to make sure that we're making um, everybody comfortable as we share this journey. Um, 3KD will be broadcasting live from the event as well, which we're really excited oh, about. Mm, great. Um, love those, those fellas down there. Um, we will be blessed as well with the performance from the Jury Jury Dance Group, the wonderful Woiwurrung women, um, Mandy Nicholson and the mob as well. So, yeah, it's going to be a very, very fun, fun afternoon. Mm, definitely. And is it out on that rooftop in Fitzroy? It is, right at the top. Yeah, unreal. That's a good place if anyone's been there before. It's quite open, isn't it? It is. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't give you a proper chance. I'm rushing, trying to get back into this hot seat and feel like fast pace. But um, what is your role that you get up to at Snake when you're there? 
Oh, goodness gracious. A mixture of things. But um, primarily National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children Day. Children's Day on August the 4th. So I'm the project officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we carry a, a, a big load of work at Snake, as, as I'm sure many people feel working in the Aboriginal community controlled space. Um, so, yeah, we, we run Snake Leads Children's Day, which happens on August the 4th, and we've just launched as well. So um, jump on the website, yeah. www.aboriginalchildrensday.com.au. Yeah, yeah. Oh, busy, busy. Um, and after Monday, is there anything else that yourself or Snake are getting up to for Reconciliation Week? Um, I guess we'll, yeah, we'll definitely be looking forward to this, this event on Monday. And after that, Marbo Day. After that, NAIDOC Week. And tell me a little bit more about Snake what, and what it does. Like, what's the day-to-day work so um snake is the national peak body advocating for the rights and best interests of aboriginal and torres strait islander children so snake um really leads in the in the space of policy reform also advocacy work um we're a members-based organization so we've got members all across the country um and snake also delivers training on a on a national face that will keep you pretty busy. Pretty busy. Are there any particular policy reform areas you're focusing on right now? Um, it would be out-of-home care and tackling the over-representation of our children. Yeah, in, in, um, in out-of-home care. Mm-hmm. And so you're putting forward to policymakers how to, do, how to best approach that? That's right. Yeah. And we've got a, a deadly senior policy uh, manager, John Burton, who, uh, yeah, it's beautiful to give him a shout out. He works really hard. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marlene, you're also a very understated um, singer songwriter, I believe. Oh, you um, subtly just told me that you'll be performing on the event coming up in Footscray yeah. this Saturday. Yeah, it should be fun. It should be fun. I'll be um, joined by Robert Champion, Brett Lee, Alara Pattinson. Uh, who else have we got? Crystal Mercy. Or Lady Lash, as she's formerly known as. Oh, yes, I know Lady Lash. <laughs> yeah, wow. What day are you on? On Sunday. On oh, Sunday, Sunday, yeah. And and that was the event that Hannah uh, said that she was keen to, uh, yeah, she was looking forward to it. So it's young Aboriginal musicians, yeah? That's right. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm going on Sunday, That's uh, and maybe even Saturday night. I think I should get take up residence in Woodscray <laughs> for, <laughs> for the week. It is. It's just, uh, you know, the setting is terrific as well. So I'll see you on Sunday. Great. Great. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah, we definitely encourage um, any mob who's really interested in, in turning up to the event on, on Monday for lunch. Um, we have a Facebook event where you can register and... Um, Mm. Yeah, so this is now back to back your event. <laughs> just say yeah, name. Many hats. Many hats. Well, name, name your event again yeah, for everyone. Right. Uh, Some people might have just woken up, you okay. know, just tuned in. Right. So we've got Reconciliation on the Rooftop at uh, Fitz- in North Fitzroy. You can mm. find us on Facebook. Definitely. Thanks so much for joining us, Maylene. No Hopefully we're going to let end out here with a little tune from yours, a little taste of what people can get up to on Sunday. You're tuned into 3CR Wednesday Breakfast.
3CR Wednesday Breakfast is where you are. That was Maylene Slater-Burns on the airwaves just then. She was in talking about Snake and little did we know that she's playing at a festival this week where Judith was taking us to not long ago. This beautiful tune. The the track title is This Is For Us. You can find it at SoundCloud if you'd like or if you can head down and hear it live at... At the Woman Digger Festival this weekend, this Sunday at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. <laughs> beautiful. You are on Wednesday breakfast. It is a beautiful Wednesday. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Wake up every morning Put the kettle on 
Christmas me day Half the day is gone Cause mornings ain't easy To get out of bed Need to get motivated But I think I'll stay home instead But there's so much work to be done Rest I can afford You know I'd rather be busy That was the fabulous Kucha Edwards from his um, album Beneath the Surface, and the song was Circles. Circles, beautiful tune, beautiful mm. tune. All about us getting up early. <laughs> we don't want to be bored. <laughs> we don't want to be bored, and Dr. James Welling doesn't want to be bored either. He's a frontier cowboy, self-professed air pollution nerd, um, and a researcher and community organiser at Environmental Justice Australia. And he joins us on the line this morning to talk about a special licence that's been granted to AGL's 46-year-old Lindale coal-fire-powered station. Thanks for joining us this morning, James. Thanks for having me on. 
for those of us who aren't familiar with Environmental Justice Australia, can you just tell us a little bit about the organisation and what it strives to achieve? Sure. Environmental Justice Australia began its life as the Environmental Defender's Office in Victoria. It's based on the 60L building in Carlton. And we've, we've grown in both our scope and our size. It's a team of 14 or 15 lawyers and a, and a team of other people with different skills, including me. And we, uh, we've extended our, our sphere of concern and activity from Victoria to working national. I'm based in Newcastle, close to the source of much of Australia's air pollution to work on EJA. So air pollution and health. Mm. And in a statement in line with that work that you're describing out there, uh, EGA says the Lindale coal mine has just been and will continue to emit 14 times the higher than international best practice for the NOx emissions. Um, can you, which is which is uh, 100 or 1400 micrograms per cubic meter? Can you just put that into perspective for me? Yes. Um Look, we, we've been asked by communities around Australia to um, help them learn more about the air pollution from power stations and coal mines uh, that they live close to. Power stations are the biggest source in Australia of several toxic pollutants and, and coal mines, the, the greatest source of coarse particle pollution. But focusing for the moment on, on the power stations in the Hunter Valley, there are four of uh, New South Wales' five big coal-fired power stations, the Liddell Power Station, is owned by AGL. They, they have two large coal-fired power stations in the Hunter. And it's a clunker. It's approaching 50 years. The company's dead keen to close it. And as your listeners will know, there's extraordinary pressure from the Prime Minister and the, the Liberal uh, Coalition to keep the power station open. The community living closest to that power station asked us to look at the pollution licence conditions. And as you say, what we learnt was, was shocking to us, to me, that, um, that that power station is licensed to emit 14 times as much uh, oxides of nitrogen, the nasty gas that irritates your eyes and nose and throat, as a power station of equivalent age in the United States, and twice as much as other power stations in New South Wales. That's so upsetting for the people who live in the vicinity of the power station. It is. It's. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very serious health impact. We, we know from research that people living within even 100 kilometres of a coal-fired power station can uh, have um, an increased incidence of preterm birth, of lower birth rate, which uh, you know, influences somebody's health for the rest of their life. But also with these oxides of nitrogen, there can be quite a range of short-term health impacts, tiredness, shortness of breath, nausea, coughing. Um, and, and now we've learned that those power stations really could bring down those toxic emissions by a huge order, 85 or 90 percent, just by spending some money. Mm. And that spending some money, it was a report put together by Ericon for AGL that describes a number of different ways to reduce air pollution, but it sounds like Liddell isn't looking to implement them under cost, under cost predicament, that they don't want to spend money on, on lowering that. Is that correct? That's how it seems. Uh, AGL put up uh, quite a spirited fight to prevent us accessing this document. It took more than six months of appeals and so forth before we got it. And when we did, any dollar figures were redacted. They were blacked out. And so we don't know how much the pollution controls might cost that company. 
I guess our, although, although this, uh, our attention this week is on Liddell, in the longer term, there's a fleet of coal-fired power stations around Australia, including three in the Latrobe Valley. There's, there's 12 or 13 large coal-fired power stations, some of which may have a, a life expectancy of another you know, 10 or 15 years, perhaps. Um, those power stations, like Liddell, don't have in place this technology that the, that the report talks about, selective catalytic reduction, which is best practice. And I guess we'll be, we'll be calling on those companies and the state governments that regulate their pollution to do everything that they can, including fitting this technology to protect community health. Mm. And how does that work? How does that technology work? Just, and do you know a rough estimate of how much it would cost? We, we understand that it would be in the order of, you know, $100 million or more per power plant uh, to install this technology, which sounds perhaps to, you know, to a punter like an awful lot of money. But bear in mind the, the massive profits that these power stations are, are making and, and the fact that these technologies have been around for 10 or 20 years. Had the power stations committed to them at the time that uh, generators in Europe, Japan, the United States were installing this type of equipment, you know, a lifetime ago now, a generation ago, uh, it would have cost them perhaps a tenth of that each year on their ledger to, to install that. It is part of the cost of operating and, you know, needs to be factored into to the, uh, to, to the cost of power in order for it to be a fair and just arrangement for the communities who are most impacted. Mm-hmm. You can imagine on the central coast, in New South Wales, close to where I live, um, there's Australia's largest coal-fired power station, Araring. There's a smaller power station, Vales Point, which is often in the news. Um, there is no air pollution monitoring anywhere close by. Neither of those two power stations have NOx controls, uh, technologies to control oxides of nitrogen, uh, or oxide, sorry, sulphur dioxide either, which is nasty, very nasty pollutant. And, and that community is unfairly exposed. To that pollution simply because they live close to where the power is being generated. Um, you know, I'm thinking that the politicians that love coal so much, those that are big coal advocates, do any of them live in the vicinity of these coal-fired plants? That's that's a good question. Uh, not not that I'm aware. Uh, it might be. Um, you know. Um, an educative experience for them to move their families in, maybe just for a year, you know, just just have a look at the impact. Yeah, it, it's become such a politicised issue, and and I think to the point that the the debates about about coal-fired power and you know the transition to renewable that that, that our organisation really welcomes um, has become irrational. In today's paper, for instance, I, I read that the uh, Monash group of uh, the most pro-coal members yes. of our federal parliament are yes. suggesting that AGL should be subject to, a, to, a, to legal action and prosecution if they close this old coal-fired power station in the Hunter. That's extraordinary. Mm. It, it is. My, mouth, my jaw has just dropped. I mean, who should be subject, you know, to litigation here? The, the government that puts us all at risk, or at least people living near the power stations. That's amazing. The, the situation in Victoria is, is, is no better, I should say. I mean, this, this study focused on Liddell and New South Wales. 
the, the three power stations in the Latrobe Valley don't have uh, the technologies in place to capture ultra-fine particles, very fine respirable particles that enter deep into your lungs. Those fine particles are the killer. The uh, air pollution in Australia contributes to the premature death of more than 3,000 people each year. More, more people dying prematurely than from car accidents. And that's almost entirely from the health burden of fine particles which from power stations in the Latrobe Valley are not being captured. That's the only place I'm aware of in Australia where um, bag filters for fine particle pollution are mm. not installed. And another example mm. of inequality in health. You know, who dies younger and um, who gets sick? But the worrying thing I behind this is the, the licence that's been granted to AGL's mine as an exemption. Like... Ha- how has that not been public knowledge or community knowledge? And how did EGA come across this piece of information? Was it a resident who brought it to you or was it through the organisation's research itself? We've come to work on power stations in response to very strong community concern in what we, what we think of as hotspots, air pollution hotspots, and that includes the power station communities as a team with, with some legal expertise and, and research expertise, we went looking under every available rock and we looked closely at the pollution licences that mm-hmm. all of these power stations are granted and found in the Liddell power station licence uh, uh, a clause that captured our attention, which suggested that, that uh, not, not this exemption, but it did say the power station would, need, would be obliged to look at all available measures to reduce oxides of nitrogen being emitted. We were just interested to learn what they knew, where we know from literature the technologies that are being used in other parts of the world. We wanted to know what AGL knew. Um, and, and the report is enlightening. It, it, it's, it's available on our, our website now, mm-hmm. now that we've accessed it. Um, and it outlines a dozen uh, technologies that would reduce NOx by anywhere between 20% and 90%. In some cases, without um, without introducing infrastructure, without any hardware being installed at the power station, simply operating the power station differently, changing the way the coal is burnt, changing the way the gases are introduced to a furnace during the coal, a process called double burning, where the air that's that's already uh, been burnt, that the coal is in in uh, in a gaseous form, is burnt a second time, that can reduce NOx emissions. A whole range of technologies and techniques. Uh, none of which are being used at that power station. Mm. And so with this knowledge and snowball effect that can come from public knowledge and as one of your founding principles at EGA is um, informed communities, a empowered community, how are the best and what are the best ways to continue putting pressure on the government and the Liddell and just raising community awareness around this? That's right. We, we're strong believers in uh, community right to know. Um, it's, uh, it is um, disturbing how, how often communities don't uh, have the right to know. As I was saying, the people in the Central Coast have no air pollution monitoring. Community in Lithgow, where the Mount Piper coal-fired power station is, don't have uh, any air pollution monitoring. And in many places, such as the Latrobe Valley, um, the companies are often doing their own monitoring uh, for air pollution and not releasing that data to the community. The state government just sits on their hands and allows that situation to happen. When, when that changes, when the tables turn and communities have as much information as they can, the dynamic changes. And uh, right around the world, 
we see that that um, communities and governments, you know, are only in the, the the roles that they're in with the permission and the consent of the community, and that consent is conditional, and it's only fair to expect that a community will do everything that it can, everything within its means, to protect the communities that they operate side by side with. That's well said, James. And on that note, if anyone else is in a community where they feel like they need a little bit of help um, researching or getting to the bottom of um, a concern around air pollution or community safety from an organisation like the Liddell or Energy Producer, how's the best way to get in contact with yourself or the organisation? Where would you direct people? EJA has a great website, environmentaljustice.org.au. Um, we're just one of, of several organisations around Australia who are doing work like this. Um, and I'm too happy to share, you know, all the information that we have and hopefully some helpful advice. Mm. Thanks, James, for joining us this morning. Um, people can head to that website and learn a little bit more about um, what's been happening at Liddell and look into the reports there. Thanks for sharing your time. Thanks so much. Dr James Welling there from the um, Environmental Justice Australia. You're tuned in to Wednesday Breakfast. You're here with Judith and myself, Patrick. 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. From every corner of the land, womankind Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favorite t-shirt. It's all part of the communication mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Right here on 3CR. Wednesday breakfast is where you are. Up now we have... We have Greg Denham, who's the Executive Officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. But just some background. The Victorian Law Reform Road and Community Safety Committee, that's a kind of long title, 
has uh, has conducted an extensive local, national, and international inquiry about the effectiveness of drugs, of sorry, of laws and procedures relating to illicit and synthetic drugs and prescription medication. So, a pretty big inquiry, a pretty wide um, investigation. The report, simply entitled Inquiry into Drug Law Reform, was tabled just a month ago on March 27th, well, almost two months ago now, and it has around 50 recommendations by my memory, but, you know, so it's a lot. Next Wednesday, 30th of May, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum is holding a community forum on the report, and it's interesting, we've just heard from um, uh, from James from the Environmental Justice Association how important an informed community is in getting information. Well, I think this is the case again. So the, the forum next Wednesday is on from 4 to 6 at Richmond Town Hall, 30, 333 Bridge Road, if, if you haven't been there. And uh, Greg is, um, I guess, the, the instigator, the organizer, along with the, the Yarra Drug and Health Forum itself. So, Greg, that was a long time to wait, but welcome to 3CR Breakfast. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you said everything that I was going to say. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I, I doubt somehow, Greg, I doubt that. <laughs> because my first question... <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, you know, what motivated you? Or maybe I have answered, I don't know, but I'm sure you'll say it better. What ma- motivated you to organize this forum on the parliamentary inquiry? Into well, look, yeah. I think it's a really important inquiry and it's a really important report. And uh, it, it was, um, I think, nearly 12 months um, in its development. And as you pointed out, there's over 50 recommendations and it is an extensive report. I haven't read all of it. I've read... Um, quite a bit of it, but um, as far as the Yarra Drug and Health Forum is concerned, like we've been operating in the city of Yarra since the mid-1990s when there was a lot of heroin around Smith Street and places like that, and, and now, of course, it's all moved down to North Richmond and Abbotsford, and we've, we've um, advocated and campaigned over the years for drug policy reform because we see, I guess, the consequences of a system, a, a legal system and policy system which um, is fundamentally based on punishment for the use of drugs and punishment for um, drug dependency. So, you know, we, we see the consequences of uh, people injecting in public and we see, um, you know, I guess people's lives um, almost destroyed by um, illicit drugs and the policies that govern those, um, that, that, that drug use and that behaviour. So this particular report is quite critical in, in terms of changing Changing that um, or steering us away from this ongoing process of, um, I guess, vilifying people who use drugs, um, incarcerating them, um, stigmatising, discriminating against them, and um, a step forward in the right direction. So the forum really is um, supportive of this report and recommendations. Okay, so and, so uh, you are you generally are supportive, or the Yarra Drug and Health Forum is generally supportive of the recommendations, and then the forum that's on next week also. Who's going to be speaking there? Well, we've got four um, speakers. It was a cross, um, I don't know what you call it, um, cross-party representation. Um, there's Jeff Howard, who's the chair of the committee, We've got Nina Sprinkle from the Greens. Um, we've got Martin Dixon, um, who um, is the opposition. Uh, he's a spokesperson who was on um, 
was on the committee and Fiona Patton, so we, and who, who's from the Reason Party. So we've got a pretty broad sort of representation politically um, in terms of uh, talking to the report. So it, it's certainly not not biased in any way. We, we we acknowledge and have acknowledged all along that there are differing views about you know the, the drug problem, so to speak, and um, we believe that uh, you know it's, it's, it's as important to work with the people that not only support. Um, the, the view of the forum, but also work with those that have a different view, and it's about a community discussion to move move this issue forward. So we've got a good, a good lineup of very four very good speakers. And I'm wondering, I know Fiona Patton was from the Reason Party was instrumental in getting um, the inquiry up. Um, uh, the people that are on your panel, have some of them been involved in the, the trips overseas to actually look at what's happening in Canada, for example, in Portugal, um, Switzerland? Are some of the, will some of the people be speaking about that? Yes, they all went, and uh, they all um, visited those um, countries. Um, as you point out, Portugal, um, they went to the UK, uh, to Canada, to the United States, um, so and and Switzerland, so it was a pretty comprehensive sort of tour. There was also um, uh, Victoria Police representation on that, um, yeah, on on that tour. So um, yeah, the the um, tour really did enable the um, I guess the the committee participants to get a very good understanding of what the current approaches were that were being taken internationally and also the trends. The trend is, is the interesting part because internationally, over the past 10 years, there's been a significant trend towards drug policy reform in many countries and uh, I think we, you know, we in Australia have laid behind what's happening overseas and I think it's time to push that agenda for reform. Yes, indeed, and and one part of that, I'm sure, is having a well-informed community, which is what you're aiming for in in putting on this forum. How how soon do you expect the government to act on the findings, or or do you expect them to act on the findings? I mean, there's many reports that end up in you know in in the bin or in in filing cabinets, and we don't hear from them again. Mm, I think. Uh, in terms of legislation, they're required to report back within six months. So, um, which, which um, as always, the timing is interesting because, um, as you know, we're coming up to a state election in November. So, and uh, and um, uh, um, what's happened in the past, and uh, no doubt it will happen again, that the drug issue will get caught up in, you know, often an escalating um I guess um, a bit of a frenzy around um, drug law reform, but not the reform that we would like to see. It often goes the other way in, in terms of tough, tough on drugs. drugs. Tough on drugs. That's that right. old um, mantra, furphy. <laughs> and I often liken it to a, a football, you know, or a game of football that uh, it always comes out in time and it's um, dragged out and people see who can kick it the furthest as far as you know, getting tough on drugs is concerned. Unfortunately, that's dominated our politics for the last 15 years, since um, the John Howard era in the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, our um, focus has very, been very much on, on law and order, and um, we believe it's time to shift that focus away from law and order towards more humane, health, human rights-based approaches. So, um, yeah, we, we're very much um, a community-based organisation. We're, we're based in Yarra. We do like to think we punch them above our weight, so to speak, in terms of, you know, um, 
certainly uh, driving an agenda around drug policy reform. We like to reflect what's happening on the streets in terms of um, state and national policy. So um, forums such as this um, are events that we believe are quite critical to inform and educate uh, mm. the public. And um, there will obviously be people from the alcohol and drug sector, justice, police, um, council, etc. there, but we also encourage residents who have been very vocal in terms of addressing drug issues around Yarra over the last two years. Um, we encourage everyone who's got interest to attend Greg, on that um, football note and how you're going to change the game, is there anything or any tactics that you're running into the stadium that will be this state election that we can take from this morning on Wednesday breakfast and gleam a little bit as it is a bit of an activist community and anything to change the game we always like to put in our back pocket? Mm. Well, look, look, that's a really good question because, um, you know, I've, I've always believed or have believed up until the last few years that um, you know, all you do, all you need to do is present the facts and the evidence, and people will change their minds. But that's that's not the case. And uh, I was also listening to your previous um, discussion um, on the environment, and uh, and whether it's the environment, whether it's drugs, whether refugees, it's often people's emotions that you need to tap into. And uh, you know, people will read something in the media which creates a perception around a particular issue, and um, it's a, it's very important that. You work um, closely with people who may have opposite views, as I said, um, just as much as you work with people who um, support what you're saying. And uh, sometimes decisions um, or the, the issue is best not to be played out in, in public. It's best to sort of use, um, use opportunities to advocate with people who make decisions in an environment where it's a lot safer for them. So that's, that's the thing that, things that I've learned over the last two or three years, particularly with the injecting room issue. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult to work in a, in a media environment where you, um, I guess, you have a media um, or, or you know, um, media groups who who are equally um, or, or equally benefit from the, the drug issue as well. So um, they you know, sure do. Um, they get lots of stories. Yeah, not necessarily the kind oh, we want. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, it drives. You know, it drives um, drives sales. You know, um, front page of newspapers. You know, war on drugs, um, all that stuff. You know, the media really, um, I guess, hones in on those types of um, headlines and conversations mm. uh, old habits to drive public hard. opinion. Yeah, yeah, and often the facts, you know, get lost, um, get lost amongst all of that. And I think one of the one of the recommendations from this particular report, which I do think is a really important uh, recommendation, is that a a separate agency be set up. To look at drug policy and, and and look at the evidence that supports policy rather than the rhetoric and the emotionally driven um, hysteria, and often it is hysteria. You know, you look at the issues around ice in particular, yes. and uh, you know, it's a yeah. lot of misinformation and and banner, uh, headlines, you know, mm. um, which create this. Pardon? It's yep. a fine line. It's a balancing act that you're walking there um, in the public, behind doors, and doing a lot of advocacy work. It's great to hear. You've got to do it all, I think. Yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. tactics that you've, you've got, got there. Thanks, you, thanks, Greg. Yeah, you just can't rely on a media release 
No, um, no, it, it's really, true. Really but Greg, you, yeah, but we are going to have to wind up now because we oh, have okay. yet another person coming on who will not cover the same issues, but also talk about some of the problems with what's happening right now. So um, yeah. I just want to thank you so much for coming on, Greg. And people, if you're thank interested. You. Thank you. The community forum is being held next Wednesday, 30th of yes, May. You don't from, need to register. You don't need to just register? No, four just o'clock, 4 o'clock, turn up. Okay, great. Bye-bye. <laughs> yes. 3CR is where you're at. It is Wednesday morning. Hope you're having a good morning out there. Oh 
by Harmony Burn on this lovely Wednesday morning. It's her latest single to come out of her neck of the woods. And uh, now we're going to be speaking with Father Rod Bauer. And uh, some of you may have heard of the Gosford Anglican Church. It's often prominent on Facebook, I've noticed. It's gained an international reputation, even a report from the BBC. So uh, people are noticing. uh, For its clever billboards exposing injustice, uh, particularly in Australian government's policies on asylum seekers, but sometimes it's America's ridiculous gun laws and many other social issues speaking truth to power. So last weekend, Gosford's Saturday night mass was interrupted by five Melbourne men, allegedly uh, ultranationals and neo-Nazis, one wielding a whip, another carrying a sword, So, And it's the second time this has happened. So Father Rod Bauer is on the line, and he's going to bring us up to date. Are you there, Father Bauer? Good morning, yes. Good morning, and and thank you for um, coming on the show this morning. It's great to have you here. Pleasure. And so I'm wondering if you can begin by just describing what happened last Saturday. It must be still fairly vivid in your mind. Well, about five minutes into the service, uh, five men entered the church, one with a, uh, a loud hailer, so it was a, you know, a, a very shocking entry. Uh, one, one was carrying a whip, uh, another a sword. We did work out later that it was a, a fake sword, but we didn't know that at the time. Uh, so uh, you know, people were screaming. It was a, a very frightening and traumatic event. Um, he then went on with his loud hailer to have his say, although we asked him to leave. And, and so what filmed, sort of uh, things were, was he saying? What were, sort of things were, was the person saying? Well, he, I, I eventually worked out that at the time I, I couldn't tell you what he said. I was just, it was just so traumatic and I was in shock and I was worried about my parishioners. And, uh, but he was dressed as Jesus, uh, and that's why he was carrying a whip. It's a reference to John's Gospel, Chapter 2, where Jesus cleansed the temple. And, uh, he was going on about this being his father's house. He was going to drive me out of it. I mean, this is a seriously unhinged individual. There's no doubt about that. But it was a, it was an, an incredibly uh, frightening uh, event for the congregation. Terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, have, I'm, I assume you've reported this to the police. Um, how oh, yes, have, yes, have the they responded? Investigating and, um, well, at the moment they're investigating. They're looking at the video and considering what action they, uh, they may be able to take. But this is not the first time, is it? We, we had a similar invasion in uh, August 2016 where a, um, uh, another very conservative group 
uh, dressed up as Muslims and, and came and invaded our service, again using the, the, the loud hailer. And, uh, again, that was a quite traumatic, but this was uh, a, a, such a high scale in that sense because it was a Saturday night, it was a small congregation, uh, most of whom were actually away watching the Royal Wedding, I think. So that's, I'm grateful for that because it was a, yes. smaller than usual. And um, it's a small space with a small chapel, and uh, these were um, so, large men. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, very so, so this is the second time, and it sounds like it was somewhat escalated. How, how did the police respond the first time it happened? What, you know, has anything been put in place? Uh, the, uh, the police are very good. We're right next to the police station, so that helps, and um, they, they investigated. We we decided at that, that, that time not to lay any charges, um, uh, although this time we will be pursuing whatever legal avenues uh, that we can. After the last event, we did put in some significant security measures on a Sunday morning, but we never worried about Saturday night because it's a very small you know, gathering and uh, we didn't think it was uh, a target. Obviously, we, we were mistaken there, so we will now put some, uh, some some security strategies in for Saturday night as well. I'm just curious, Rod. How did these individuals leave the building after coming in with such force? Uh, they left after they had uh, said what they, they wanted to say. They, these people are after the, the video. They want the video to put up on their propaganda uh, website and uh, so they they left and the and the police uh, met them at the bottom of the drive and took their names and um, but it's uh, I, I think this is not to be diminished it, it, it was in my view uh, an act of terrorism it, it's 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 a, it's an act that is motivated by uh, a political agenda uh, wrapped up in some twisted version of a religion uh, it's uh, an act designed to instill fear uh, to change people's behaviour and uh, I don't know how you define a, a terrorist act other than that and uh, I'm, I'm told by the police it doesn't fit the criteria uh, for charges under the Terrorism Act and um, I certainly think yeah, morally and ethically it does uh, and that, that, that they did leave us uh, terrorised uh, although they'll be unsuccessful in changing our behaviour because that just makes us all the more determined, I think, to continue to preach a, a gospel of love and, in, and inclusion. Yeah, so, you know, as, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, how does one respond from a, a Christian perspective? And I guess what came to my mind is things like, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, this was, um, I don't know, you know, really, I don't know what you can do. But I think there's a great irony that the government is investing all kinds of money, taxpayer dollars, on police, military, border force, all in the name of protecting its citizens, when in the, re- the reality is, I mean, the, the effect is quite different. I'm sure you don't feel more safe because all this money is being spent. Well, of course, we're not more, <laughs> we're not more safe. And in fact, the, uh, the, you know, the real threat is, is not really from without. The government likes to think that, of course. The real threat, as we found on Saturday night, uh, is uh, is from within. You know, when I when I was training for the priesthood 30 years ago, we were we were we were, we were trained to you know, run Bible studies, and take communion to people, and that kind of thing. And, 
And we, but we, we studied Martin Luther King Jr., we studied Dick Bonhoeffer, uh, Oscar Romero, all of these clergy who had given their lives for, for justice. And we, we always thought that that was something that happened overseas. It was, we, we never ever contemplated uh, that this was something that we as clergy would encounter in Australia. Uh, we could never have imagined that, uh, you know, priests and people would be being intimidated by uh, right-wing extremists in this country. We could never have imagined that people would be being locked up in, um, uh, in camps offshore. Uh, we could never have imagined that um, we would have a, a government minister who had so much power that he controlled uh, you know, all intelligence services and, uh, uh, and law enforcement services. So... Um, we've, we're finding us as we've gone down a rabbit hole here that uh, I'm not sure we fully understand the depth of. I'm going, and, uh, yeah, and, and what's caused this change, do you think? Can it be slated mainly back to government and, and lack of leadership, really, or, or the kind of leaders distorted? The kind of leadership, and it's the, it's the, the, the kind of propaganda, and you, you put propaganda with leadership and, um, uh, and instilling fear in people for the purpose of, of gain, gaining power. Uh, we've, we've seen this happen around the world uh, throughout history, and uh, we know where it leads. And I think it is time for, for the churches to stand up and say, uh, never again, uh, no more. The, the reason, you know, the Holocaust is what happened when, when Christians went quiet in Germany in 1935. And, I, I'm, I'm really disturbed that I'm not seeing uh, bishops and priests and pastors standing up around the country uh, condemning our, uh, our immigration policies, our asylum seeker and refugee policies, uh, and even condemning that act on Saturday night, um, because uh, we know when, when Christians don't stand up and speak out for human rights, that uh, pretty terrible things happen. So it's, uh, it's about time we started doing that. Mm. And on that note, Rod, can you tell us a little bit about the sign writing that happens down at your church and who writes the signs and how, does they, how do they get put up there for the public to see? Well, generally by me. Um, we, we have a, a bit of a clean conversation sometimes about uh, what we'll put up and, uh, or sometimes I just think, no, I need to say something about this. And I, I, I rush down the front and put up a sign and take a photo and... Uh, put it on, on social media. So uh, uh, sometimes it's a, a team effort. Uh, uh, my uh, my wife Kerry is also very much involved, and uh, and uh, we'll have a conversation. Sometimes I'll put something up without consultation, and she'll she'll ring me and say, oh, "I don't think you should say that." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to get feedback, isn't it? And I'm wondering what what sign is up in front of the church right now. Well, we put up the, the other day. Um, we're into Hail Mary, not Hail Hitler. <laughs> and, uh, so that's Very sign is still out there, and uh, it's yeah. featured uh, on, on, on television and, and so forth. But I think that's true. We uh, we're we're into to praising praising God, not uh, you know praising human institutions. Where uh, you know we're into to loving kindness, uh, not into the abuse of power. Yes, and, and uh, uh, I think that's I'm, I'm the world also... we want to live in. Yes, indeed. And so I'm, you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what kind of response generally have you had? Have you had lots of media knocking on your door, for example, mainstream media? Have you had other Christian congregations, other faiths contacting you to say this has been a terrible thing that's happened? 
It's, well, I, I have a very close relationship with uh, the Muslim community because I, you know, part of what I do is to try and build bridges, not walls. And so, uh, uh, of course, yes, I've had um, uh, lots of very kind messages from the Muslim community as well as from uh, uh, other Christians. The media, of course, has been uh, quite interested. Um, and uh, even New Zealand um, uh, television picked us up last night. And uh, so as traumatic as the event was, it's also an opportunity to, to talk about uh, the world we want to leave to our grandchildren, and uh, you know what I—I uh, I had a, I did have a parishioner say on Sunday morning, "Oh, do you, you think we ought to just you know be a bit quieter?" And I said, "Well, you know that—that's what happened in 1935 Germany. So you know what—what what world do you want your grandchildren to grow up in? Do you want them to grow up in a world that is that is identified by by love and kindness, um, or, or by fear and power? I think that's the choice uh, that we have. So." Uh, I'm, I'm choosing, to, as a grandfather now, you, you get a little bit more interested in the, in the, yes, in the long term. Yes, well, congratulations on being a grandfather, <laughs> an important role. Yeah, and you start to think, you know, my, my little granddaughter. Yeah. Uh, she, <laughs> you know, statistics say she, she should live till she's 104. And uh, so what kind of world can, can we forgive her? Yeah, um, so important, that's and uh, that's why we stand up for for love and kindness, and uh, and and human connection, and the appreciation of uh, all humanity, and uh, that's the kind of world we we want to we want to give to our grandchildren. Indeed, and Father Ron Bauer, thank you so. Ron, please, thank you. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> and uh, so much for coming on this morning to Wednesday breakfast and uh, bringing us up to date with you know what's been happening, uh, and also your ideas and uh, and uh, you know what you're advocating for, what you're trying to achieve. And I know you'd have lots of support from people here at 3CR because we had a visit just two years ago from the same people. So well, you, um, you know how it feels. <laughs> yes, we do know how it feels. So all the best with your work and uh, hopefully we'll talk again at some point. Thank you so much. I look forward to that. Yeah, same. 3CR is where you were at. And that was... Uh, the Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. 
social media to citizen journalism to the logo on the front of your favorite t-shirt it's all part of the communication mixdown each week thursday 6 to 6 30 right here on 3cr well um Last year, first of all, just big, big, big thank you uh, to Father Ron Gower. Uh, Rod Gower, Rod. what an amazing, thank you. <laughs> what an amazing interview. Um, now, last year, some of you may be aware, but, you know, interestingly, I spoke to someone just a few days ago who's pretty politically astute, and, and uh, she said, no, I didn't know about this. You know, I didn't know anything. How come I don't know about it? You weren't having a political conversation, were oh, you, Judith? Oh, I might have been. I might have been. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the review into religious freedom was announced last November uh, in the wake of, you know, concerns raised by some church leaders, it seems, uh, about um, the legislation of same-sex marriage. Last week, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull received the final report from the expert panel that conducted the review, uh, but he said it's not going to be available to the public. Not yet. Not yet. He wants to consider it uh, in detail and consult with members of the government before releasing it, and it's responding to its findings. So on the line this morning is Lee Carney from the Human Rights Law Centre, and um, they made a submission to the review into religious freedom. So welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, Lee. Thank you for having me. Well, yeah, we really appreciate people getting up early in the morning to, to come on the show. So thanks so much. Can, I'm, just, I'm just wondering if you can uh, give us a bit, a bit of background to the review. I've said a little bit, but, uh, you know, how do you see, you see it? Why was this review conducted and, and why last November? Well, I think your summary was very accurate. Essentially what happened was the Prime Minister announced the review um, just before the debates on the Marriage Equality Amendment Bill were to be debated in the Senate. Um, and that's because there were a raft of arguments that were being raised by some of the church leaders on the no side um, that really had nothing to do with marriage but related to you know, the rights of people of faith and how they would be balanced against the rights of people and other people in our community. So these were things about education, about discrimination laws, about charity laws, um, and so the idea was that those arguments would be dealt with separately so that marriage equality in that issue could be dealt with last year, which was the promise that the Prime Minister went to when he announced the postal survey. I see. So, so in a way, it's um, a kind of genuflection to uh, the more radical, or um, radical might not be a fair comment, but to some, and I note you said some, Christian groups who aren't comfortable with the results of that survey. Well, I, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, you can say that, Jim. Oh, okay. I, think that <laughs> I just did, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that um, one of the things that was of concern was that during a public campaign, there was so much misinformation that was being peddled by elements of the no side, um, a lot of misinformation about what uh, marriage equality would mean in terms of laws and religious freedom after marriage equality was introduced and the impact that it would have on schools in particular and education. And so I think the inquiry was also an opportunity to see whether any of those claims had any merit, whether they were 
um, there was any proof behind any of them, because obviously it's easy during a really short-term public debate to um, make a whole lot of advertisements and release posters, um, but none of those necessarily have to be true. And so it was a way of figuring out whether there were any claims from religious groups um, that had merit and whether there were some that really were founded in a, a misunderstanding of the impact of marriage equality on broader society. And so, so you're suggesting that you know there may there may have been some merit um, in in actually looking more deeply um, into the process. It was sorry into um, yeah religious freedom generally as an idea. Um, how was it carried out, and, and like what was the process for this review? It was a very unusual process in that um, a panel was appointed very quickly, headed by. Philip Ruddick, um, and with a number of uh, experts who have some expertise in dealing with religious freedom. Um, initially, when the panel was elected, there was some criticism, particularly from LGBTI groups, that there weren't anyone, uh, there wasn't anyone appointed on the panel that had kind of a broader discrimination law um, experience that related to LGBTI people or related to other minority groups. Um, but the panel was appointed and. A lot of the process, I think, has been subject to public scrutiny because it hasn't operated like a normal parliamentary inquiry where transcripts are available, there are public hearings, there's some transparency about what is happening, the arguments being raised, um, so that there can be some um, assurance, I suppose, to the members of the general public that um, the report is going to be a genuine reflection of the views of the community. Um, instead, there were um, a number of closed meetings that were held, um, and notes in those meetings haven't been made available. Not all of the submissions have been made available. So I think there is some trepidation, definitely, um, particularly within the LGBTI community, that uh, we don't know exactly what was said by some faith groups. We don't know what the report will necessarily contain, but we do know that um, we don't want to, in the wake of marriage equality, see any windback of existing discrimination protections for our community. And that seems to be what some of the church groups last year were arguing for. I see. So a little bit, it's, and I'll be a bit more cautious when I make this statement. It sounds a little <laughs> bit like the people have spoken. The government didn't like, or some members of government, I, I just want to emphasize that, um, didn't like what they said, so we're going to try something else, uh, making, in a way, you know, at, at worst, it could be that um, the whole process of the postal survey um, is undermined in some ways um, and, and kind of raises big questions about who's really running the country. So I mean, that's kind of my response to some of the things I've read and heard. I know that the Human Rights Law Centre made a, a submission to the review. What were you arguing for? Um, so we do um, believe that there are some areas where people of faith don't have the same protections that other groups do and that that should be remedied. So, for example, at a federal level, there are protections from discrimination on the basis of your, of your race, of your age, disability, um, and if you are um, on the basis of your sexual orientation, gender identity, your sex, um, or your intersex status, but there actually aren't protections on the basis of your religious belief. But there are protections in every other state and territory across the country except for New South Wales. So in practice, what this means is that um, in public anyway, if you can be, dis if you are discriminated against for wearing, you know, a turban or a headscarf or a cross or a yarmulke in New South Wales, in public places that aren't employment, you 
don't necessarily have an avenue to bring a claim for discrimination um, for any wow. mistreatment that you experience. So there are gaps in the protections of people of faith. Um, and that this was flagged in a Courier Mail article last week as something that the government may potentially be looking at as part of this review. Um, however, our argument was also that the religious exemptions in our existing anti-discrimination laws already go too far. And we saw there was a Galaxy poll last week that said that four in five Australians don't support um, religious schools being able to fire a teacher or expel a student because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And most people don't know that religious schools already have the power to do this, including publicly funded religious schools that receive taxpayer money or indeed um, publicly funded um, religious organisations that provide support services to the community like family violence services or housing services, crisis accommodation support, they have a religious exemption under anti-discrimination laws where they can lawfully turn someone away because they are LGBTI. Well, that, that feels very, I don't know, last century or, you know, really time to rectify those. Is it possible, like, if people are listening and they want to look at your submission, is it on your website? It is. It's on the Human Rights Law Centre website at www.hrlc.org.au. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that would be great to just, you know, delve into that a little bit more. Do you, do we have any idea, of that, like, have there been any leaks? Do we have any idea about the findings of the review at this stage? I think at this stage the only leak that we've seen has been um, that article in the Courier Mail that speaks about um, you know, potential federal discrimination protections on the basis of religious belief. And that's consistent with international human rights law. It's something that we would support. Uh, we believe that, you know, it shouldn't matter, you know, who you love or what your religion is, you shouldn't face discrimination in public life because of who you are. Um, but beyond that, we're really not sure. And in particular, there were a number of hostile amendments to the marriage equality bill that were raised last year that went really much further than people realised, I think, in the um, in the excitement of marriage equality passing, and there were a lot of amendments that were tabled, and we don't think that this review should be an opportunity to relitigate those arguments that were already soundly rejected by Parliament last year. Well, that's really an important point and uh, important to keep in mind as we go forward and, and when we do eventually hear the findings of this report and what the government plans to do with it. Do you have any idea what it will do with the report? I mean, one person suggested to me they'll just they'll file it away and not do anything, but uh, I think there'll be a lot of pressure to do something, and it sounds from what you're saying there's some good things that can be, come out of it. Yeah, I think that there are some good things that can come out of it, but hopefully, um, you know, there will also be, you know, thorough consideration of the fact that some of our religious exemptions from our anti-discrimination laws are outdated. They're not in line with modern community standards and they do need revisiting. Uh, I, I don't hold that hope that those will necessarily be um, followed up on as part of this review, but it's something that we need to continue advocating for. And Lee Carney, thank you so much for coming on Wednesday breakfast this morning and advocating. And um, it's always great to hear from the Human Rights Law Centre. You do such great work. Thank you for having me, Judith. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Very interesting what's coming out of there. And people can stay tuned and keep updated as it slowly leaks out. It's been a lovely Wednesday breakfast. It's been a great program. Thanks to all the big guests that came on um, and shared their story.
Yeah, well, we started off with the Womanjika Festival of Footscray Community Arts Centre, so I'm just going to give one more plug. How many I've given <laughs> to go along this weekend? It's great to go over to Footscray. There's great food. You can have a lovely meal and then go along to some of the events. Mm, and incidentally, we had one of the performers that will be there on Sunday, Marlene, to come in, and she spoke about um, Snake and their event that's happening part of Reconciliation Week out at Fitzroy um, on Monday afternoon. You can get down to that as well if you want. Yeah, and the environmental justice uh, group. Yeah, we had the environmental justice group telling us a little bit about what's been happening down there at a coal fire plant in the Hunter Valley and a little bit of context behind government and the licenses that have been granted to some of these old power institutions and the risks to public health. Yeah, and Greg Denham, of course, um, and then the big forum that's coming up next Wednesday afternoon looking at the, the review of uh, drug law policy and policy reform. Wow, did we have more? Have we covered everybody? We have it. Oh, we have. And I'd Lee like Co- to say a um, big Lee. thank you to Idwin Jeffrey. She's been helping out this morning, um, filling in and doing some great work. Hopefully we'll hear her voice on the airways in a short time. And, of course, uh, from Father Rod... Bauer. Rod Bauer. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I had both spellings. I had Ron and Rod. That's right. You took my <laughs> shoes for the day. I usually yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, a very passionate um, talk or speech, yeah. interview with him on what's been happening at the Gosford Anglican Church. Mm. Thank you very much. Thanks for your ears. It's been a pleasure talking to them. See you next Wednesday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.